We got a lot of scripture today, so we'll start in the book of Hebrews. Um, this is the culmination of about five weeks of sermons, so it'll look like a lot because it is a lot. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, says, Since therefore the children share flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. I'm going to read that one more time because that's our hinge for the day. Since therefore the children share flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Notice who has the power of death. The devil. He's destroyed... Because the one who took flesh and blood identified this one who had the power of death, and then he freed those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. It's important that we understand why death has been defeated. I want y'all to help me complete this sentence right here, fill in these blanks. The sting of blank is blank. Somebody got it? The sting of is sin. Yes. That's the way it's supposed to go. The sting of death is sin. The way it has been regurgitated to most of us is the sting of sin is death. We're going to talk about why that needs some clarity this morning. So, arguably... and I'll prove scripture to argue this, our debilitation or our propensity to sin is directly related to our fear of death, okay? So one of the reasons you have the whole story of the people who are in the plain of Shinar, this is Genesis chapter 11, they start erecting this tower that will reach the heavens the reason they erect this tower to reach the heavens is because they do not want to be, what? Anybody remember? Scattered. They don't want to be scattered, and they want to make a name for themselves. They want to be remembered forever. What they want is eternal life. One of the reasons we have Cain killing Abel is because Cain somehow perceived that because God regarded Abel's sacrifice as good, Cain's was bad, and if Abel's is good and Cain's is bad, Abel is a threat to Cain's existence, therefore Cain must take out Abel. Okay? Most of what we see in sin, at least in the primeval history, that's Genesis chapter 1 to 11, all hinges around this fear of death. If you'll notice in the Garden of Eden, what is it that the enemy says to Adam, the man and the woman, um, to get them to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? If you eat this, surely you won't die. Was there any language of sin? It was all about death. Now, it's important for us to realize this. God takes no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies. Y'all took that better than I thought you would. Ezekiel chapter 33 says the, this exact thing. 
As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. This is the promise of his return. He's not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but he's long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. John chapter 10, verse 10 says that the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy, but Jesus, the express image of God, says, I have come so that you may have life and life abundantly. So this contrast is always that what God is trying to offer his people is life, and what his people are plagued with is this fear of death. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 says that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. What was the work of the devil? To evoke in us the fear of death so that then we could try to carve out meaning and legacy apart from God. Now, I was in a conversation this week that really bothered me because... This lady was talking about someone close to her who died. And in the conversation, the person who was responsible for the death never got accused, which was Satan. And it frustrated me because she's trying to figure out why would God do this thing to this person she loved? And I told her, no, you have every right to be frustrated. We should be frustrated at death because it is the enemy of God. Y'all need to hear this this morning. This is a real Easter message. Death is God's enemy. 1 Corinthians 15 said that, this, that death is the last enemy that will be conquered. Revelation chapter 20 said that Death and Hades will be thrown into, guess where? The lake of fire. Death and Hades thrown into the lake of fire. Not God's tools, God's enemies. Y'all riding with me? So, Jesus comes and... He is fully God, but he also, as what we just saw in Hebrews chapter 2, he fully assumes humanity. And in his assuming humanity, not only does he show us the character of God, but he also reveals to us who we are supposed to be. He delivers us from this bondage that we've always been in slavery to, which has been this fear of death, okay? Now, I told you I was going to build some of this around uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was executed... I forget how many years now, but on this day, sometime in 1940-something, I think it was 45, um, he was executed because he was falsely accused of this conspiracy to assassinate Adolf Hitler, okay? Um, I could explain to you over a cup of coffee how all that came about, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor, a very educated pastor, a very well-renowned pastor. He actually came over to... The United States, uh, he, he was very intelligent, he came over to the United States to Union Theological Seminary. And while he was here, they were wanting to appoint him to these very high-level um, academic positions. And he, this was right at the time where World War II was starting. 
And he told his folks, he said, no, I would, I would be a coward if I did not return to Germany right now. So he's from Germany. This man returns to Germany, and his brother, um, his last name was Von Donyani. I don't remember his first name. Um, somehow got a part of this uh, crew that was in the inside of the Nazi regime, but he was trying to stage a coup uh, in the inside of the Nazi regime, and they reached out to Dietrich Bonhoeffer um, because he had ecumenical contacts. That just means he had contacts across all kind of church denominations all throughout the world. They reached out to him to see if he couldn't help them stage this coup to overthrow Adolf Hitler. Now, the reason I tell you this story is because we have been fortunate never to actually face death for worshiping Jesus. Anybody in here ever face the threat of death for worshiping Jesus? All right. You do realize, however, that that is not an uncommon thing for Christians in the world today, right? There are Christians in the world today facing death simply because they profess Jesus is Lord, all right? Now, 1940-something was not that long ago. I want to ask many of you how many of you were here in the 40s, because some of you were, all right? That was not that long ago. And this man is actually executed Non, in, a, in a way where he does not resist the execution, he actually preaches an Easter sermon two days before his execution and tells those who are listening to the sermon, this is probably going to be my last one. Basically, I'm going to go out just like the Messiah did. And this is less than 100 years ago. This is not some kind of far-off idea. But he was able to face death as if death had no power. Now, how many of y'all have ever been afraid of death? Anybody? Right? It's a natural thing to be afraid of death. It is a natural thing to realize, oh man, I am immortal. I am not eternal. Uh, there's an end to this thing. Um, what will happen to my memories? What will happen to my friendships? What will happen in general? What is the next thing? I was sitting over there holding Robertson a while ago, and we were just worshiping. He said, Daddy, where's Benny? This is Benny's house. He said, where's Benny? I said, well, I don't know, buddy, really. But John was singing that part uh, in Rattle that said, open the grave, I'm coming. I said, but listen to this part. This is her promise, buddy. I don't know where she's at right now, but I know this, that wherever she is, death does not have the final word for her. So that's something we, we have come to terms with, right? And we, we've sort of come to terms with, okay, after this live, something happens and it's going to be peaceful but this thing that Jesus has done actually delivers us from the fear of death now. So this is what we're going to talk about today. What does it mean to be free from the fear of death now? There's a, one of the early church fathers. His name was uh, Athanasius. He said, how many of you, if you saw a lion being played with by children would not know that either the lion is dead or the lion has lost all its power. If you saw children playing with a lion, you would either assume the lion is dead or it has lost all its power. Something about the lion's nature has been changed. He says this because most of the early Christians, I'm talking about first, second, third century Christians, all face death with this boldness, 
not like this resistance, but with a boldness. Even Jesus himself in the Garden of Gethsemane is crying out and he says, God, take this cup from me. Because guess what? Prior to Jesus, nobody in flesh had ever conquered what he was about to face. But once Jesus conquers the grave, now this church is built on this brand new reality that death does not have the final word, and you've got these people who are confidently facing it. This is the way the early church is built. The seed of the early church is the blood of its martyrs. This is our reality. This is our story. The seed of our family existence here was the death of our family prior to us. Okay? Now, how are they able to face this thing with boldness? How are they able to face it without fear? There's a, a man named Ernst Becker. He said that the biggest problem of the human condition is our awareness of our mortality and how the fear of death or terror drives us to seek significance through this thing he called hero systems. So he said, once we realize we're mortal, once we realize we're not going to last forever, we try to then find how can we uh, establish significance forever. And we do this through what he called cultural hero systems. We try to figure out what in this room will have people remember me, and then I do that thing that has people remember me. Well, y'all remember just a couple weeks ago, we talked about how finicky and how uh, fickle that approach to life is that if I live my whole life just trying to establish a reputation and build my own name guess what I get that's it if I live my life for the praises of people guess what I get and guess when they die off as soon as the fire happens so there's some way to live, and this is what Jesus was delivering us unto. It's what the early church was witnessing. We'll talk later about why it was martyrs and why, they, why it was all that, but that's another day. What is it to live free of the fear of death? We're still in this skin, right? We're still in this thing that when a tornado comes, we're like, oh, shoot, we need to prepare, all right? When, when natural disasters happen or when just like uh, scary moments happen in a vehicle or Really, any time like that, we still have these natural impulses to protect ourselves and guard ourselves. Those are understandable. What Jesus has delivered us from, though, is this torment that causes us to live contrary to our design. Our design is we are made for love. Now, it's important for us to see that Death, not sin, is the primary human problem. Sin comes later, but death is the first issue. There's a psychologist and theologian, his name's Richard Beck. He said, death, not sin, is the primary predicament of the human condition. Death is the cause of sin. More properly, the fear of death produces most of the sin in our lives. So that's a big statement. Now let's see how Jesus would conquer something like that. Through the life of Jesus, we witness the opposite of a life motivated by self-preservation. We observe what we just talked about last week in Philippians chapter 2, a life of self-emptying. The Greek word is the word kenosis. Self-preservation 
is the byproduct of humanity being held in slavery by the fear of death. Now, somebody give me some examples of what it means to be someone who is a self-preserver. What does a self-preserver do? What does a self-preserver not do? Anybody. Hoard. A self-preserver would hoard because the self-preserver is his or her provider. Right? The self-preserver says, I must provide for myself because if I don't provide for myself, no one else will provide for me. All right? I am sustained. My life is sustained by my ability to acquire. What else does a self-preserver do? They don't take as many risks, right? A self-preserver says, no, my life is very fragile. It's very finite. Um, I can't be taking risks because this is the only one I got. The moves I'm going to make are going to be comfortable moves. They're going to be selfish moves. They're going to be very guarded moves. This is the, the movement of a self-preserver. And what Jesus is doing is delivering us from this preservation of ourself, delivering us unto a life of love. No, that's true, right? Thank you, Jen. Jen will give you what you want. Yeah, just this constantly, like, what do you do? I just survive. We just make it. Self-preservers survive. They do not live. What has been much more natural to the human being has been the willingness to kill, not the willingness to die. Right? What would a self-preserver do? Would a self-preserver kill or die? They would kill. Right? The self-preserver kills. The self-preserver does not die. We have been much more known for our attempts at being recognized than our attempts at self-emptying. We have been much more known for our attempts to kill instead of give ourselves. But Jesus says something like this. He says, greater love has no man than this, that he shoots somebody for the sake of his child. Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Notice the giving of the self away, not the guarding of the self. Now, although in our context we're not facing death for saying Jesus is Lord, we can still see how we are approaching this lion and assuming that it still has the same nature that it always had. What happened when Jesus came as an incarnate human, this is very important for us to get this morning. God the Son has always been God the Son. This is not some kind of like 33-year uh, like um, episode of, of God. This, God the Son had always been God the Son. What we see in the incarnation of Jesus Christ is 33 years of God in a, in a different form, all right? Philippians chapter 2 explains a lot of this, that Jesus, God the Son, took on humanity, and 
actually subjects himself to the same suffering, um, the same temptations as humanity. Jesus is then crucified for the sake of the world. He's buried, he's resurrected, and upon his resurrection does not come back in some kind of angelic, ethereal body, but comes back with a body that still has piercing in its feet and hands. Okay? It's important for us to see this because what happens with God in the incarnation is God comes and shows us what he is like. What is God like? The one who would rather die than kill. The one who would rather lay down his life than preserve it. The one who would rather give than take. And what he's showing us is what it looks like for us to live as those who are free. Those who would rather give than take. Those who would rather lay down our life than take it up. Those who would rather die than kill. And here's the interesting thing. When Jesus is ascended into heaven, his body does not vanish and he become a spirit. As far as we know, through the scripture, Jesus was forever altered. His state was forever altered so that for eternity we can see God has always wanted to be with us. This is big. God with us was not just God's salvific response to sin. God with us was how God always wanted it to be. Now, when we start living free from the fear of death, here's what we can start finding fall off of us. We can start being delivered from the opinions of people, which is some of our biggest plague. Uh, we can start actually taking risk and being vulnerable because we realize that it is in giving ourselves that we find ourselves. Only if death has been conquered would we ever forgive those who have wronged us. This is the only way we'd ever risk giving to those who could take advantage of us. This is the only way we'd ever risk being with someone who was different than us whether that be in color, in economic status, in uh, gender identity. Uh-oh. The one who held the power of death has been defeated by the one through who, through his death, delivered those of us who were held in slavery by the fear of death. Now, some of you, we're going to wrap it up right here. Some of you may be sitting there saying, Cody, I'm not scared to die. Like, I know I'm going to heaven. That's not even what this is about. Cody, I'm not scared to die because if I say Jesus is Lord in my neighborhood, I get elected. Not persecuted. Right? But what we got to see is that the same powers that opposed Jesus and opposed the early church are still out there 
trying to get us to operate and live our lives crippled, tormented, and in slavery to the fear of death. But what happened on this day that we celebrate is that death was faced, death was conquered. And those of us who have been filled with the Spirit of God have the same power that conquered the grave inside of us. Therefore, there's no longer a threat of the fear of death. Now, what this should do to us is deliver us unto love. It should deliver us unto forgiveness. It should deliver us unto service. It should deliver us unto tearing down racial barriers and economic barriers and social barriers. This is what it should deliver us unto. It should deliver us unto those people who our life is not focused on the, the acquisition of locks and guns and ammunition. Because let's be honest, that has been what is propagated throughout our country right now. That's what we do. Where can we get a better lock and, a, and more bullets? And we wonder why the world doesn't see love because love does not hide behind locks and bullets. Love gives itself even to its enemies. How do I know? Because while I was still his enemy, he died for me. And then he said this. He said, you go and do likewise. What Jesus was doing was giving us the fuel to destroy our enemies. And what we've learned by now, surely we've learned this by now, that another war will not stop another war. You know what wars do? You ever been in a fight with somebody? Fist fight? Anybody ever fist fought somebody? After you fist fight somebody, afterwards you're like, yeah, we're good now. No, typically what it is is, I'm going to get mines. You got me this time, but I'm going to get mines. This is the way violence works, right? This is the way, and when I say violence, I'm, I'm using war more as a metaphor. This is the way this self-preserving life works. That analogy of hoarding is huge. I'm talking about that as violence. It's violence against our soul. And we have been delivered unto this freedom that says, no, 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 no. Death has been conquered. You get life forever. What is eternal life? This is the important thing. What death tried to say was eternal life is you being known. Eternal life is you building a legacy for yourself, you making a name for yourself, you establishing a reputation, you building a monument, buying land, preserving yourself, living longer than everybody else, taking medicine, taking supplements, having bodyguards. You're living. That's what the enemy told us was life. You be known. And you know what Jesus said in John chapter 17, verse 3? He said, this is eternal life. That they may know me. Know who? There's a way to live forever. And that way is to be hidden in Christ. The one who has already defeated the thing that was holding us in slavery.